The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, We are coming towards the end of uh, our series in 1 John. Uh, We titled it Up Close and Personal. And if you haven't been here for the rest of the series, I'll just quickly explain that to you. The reason we titled this series going through the book of 1 John, Up Close and Personal, has a lot to do with the author. And it's kind of a two-pronged deal. First, it's, it's a reference to the fact that John was a part of a very close-knit group of people that were very close to Jesus. So Jesus had, you know, 70 men, then he had 12 disciples, and then he had, there was three guys that were close to him, and that was Peter, James, and John. And they were brought in to see miracles that other people weren't. They were invited up to see Jesus transfigure. They were trusted men and friends with Jesus. And so John is one of the apostles that had one of the closest relationships to the master. And so we don't pit Scripture against Scripture, so that doesn't mean that I think what John has to say is necessarily more important than what Paul has to say. However, knowing that John spent all that time with King Jesus, it just makes me want to pay attention to what he has to say. It makes me want to pay attention to what it is he emphasizes. It makes me think, being around the Master that much, that uh, he would have a beat on what was important to Jesus. And uh, It's so cool in the book of Acts. I just One of my prayers is that this would be said of me. Um, and the first part is, uh, some guys that were trying to get guys to quit talking about Jesus, they said, it is obvious, these guys are not, they are unlearned, untrained men. And a lot of people say that about me, but I want them to say this about me too. They said, but it's obvious, these guys have been with Jesus. And uh, John is one of those guys. His relationship with the master was up close and personal. We also see from the style of his writing, the way he addresses those that he's writing this letter to. He's a pastor, and he really, really loves, you can tell, the people that he's writing to. Uh, he, he addresses them all the time as beloved, dear children. Just the way that he talks to them, it's a very fatherly tone. And so um, he's, he's a good example, I believe, of what a shepherd should be. That he's a pastor that really, really loves those that God's entrusted to him uh, to teach the Bible to and to shepherd. And so I'd, uh, I'd like to follow his example in every way possible. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to go through verses... Uh, 1 through 12. So I'll read those, and then we'll go back to the beginning and work through them in succession, okay? Let's do that. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Here we go. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that, the, that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is that this is this, that he testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar 
Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Amen. Uh, Verses 1 through 3, so it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So first here we see that John is affirming the message of salvation uh, by grace through faith alone. We see that he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And so he wants to erase Maybe somebody could misunderstand the beautiful set of verses above, right? You guys remember I said, I know you think I'm a liar because I say all the verses are my favorite, but 1 John 4, 7 through 21, I'm telling you, has been rocking my world ever since I came across them. It's, it's probably the anthem of my life. Those verses transformed the whole way I understood God. Um, but what, what we, how we can misunderstand 7 through 21 of, of 1 John 4 as it gives us this, this call and this understanding of what it means to love, that, that God is love, and it keeps calling us to love others the way that God has loved us in response to the fact that God has loved us. We could get, we, we could misunderstand and we could get over into a, a works understanding that maybe we're going to earn God's favor, his love, or, or earn salvation by walking out those works of love. The reality is that's not the way it works. We're saved by grace through faith alone. It is only by Jesus first doing his work of love in us that we even have the capacity to love others. We are empowered by the grace of God to obey these scriptures, and John wants to make that clear. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. And so no amount of love or selflessness on our part can earn salvation for us. It is only by the ultimate display of love and selflessness in the cross of Christ that we have any hope of redemption. We've got to make sure that's clear from the beginning. Now, it's important not to misunderstand what it is to believe here. Uh, to believe is not merely an academic acknowledgement of the facts about Jesus being the promised Messiah and the Savior King. James says that even demons believe to that level, right? That they, they academically acknowledge the fact that, that Jesus is the King, that he is the Messiah, that he died on the cross and rose again. James says, um, oh, you believe, you do good. So do the demons, and they shudder. So what does it mean? What, it can't just be an ascent to intellectual affirmation of what the Bible says. This is what Spurgeon said. Look at any Greek lexicon you like, and you will find that the word faith or believe does not merely mean to believe, but it means to trust, to confide in, to commit to, entrust with, and so forth. The very marrow of the meaning of faith is confidence in and reliance upon. So it is belief, not just, of, not just acknowledgement, belief that causes action. Belief that causes reliance upon King Jesus and his spirit. Okay? Um, verse 2, as we've seen before, John, uh, he's binding together loving God and loving people so tightly that they cannot be pulled apart. Look again. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So over and over again, we've seen this. We've seen John bring this back around. Um, 
what he's doing is he's putting those two things together to the point where no matter how hard you try, you won't be able to pull them apart. And that's because that's the intention of God when it comes to those two commandments. Um, and I think we just need to be careful. We should not mistake John's repetition on this subject. Um, we should not mistake it as him having a lack of anything else to write. I'm sure the guy that cruised around with Jesus as much or more than just about anybody else had a lot more things he could write. So we should interpret his, 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 uh, the fact that he says these things over and over again, his repetition, not because he's bored or has forgotten what he's already said, but that it's that important. He's written a book five chapters long, and, and it seems like in every chapter he's somehow made sure we understand this is a big deal. We got to love God and we got to love people. And those things are tied together inextricably. Over and over again, he paints that picture for us. And so we shouldn't think that that means uh, he, he, you know, he's getting older in age when he writes this and maybe you know, he's, he's just forgetting what he's already said. We should understand that I think he's doing it very much on purpose. Aside from the fact, whether or not I have a lot of trust in John's mental faculties, I have trust in the fact that these scriptures were inspired by God himself. And so God clearly wanted us to see over and over again, let me make it clear to you, dear ones. If you're going to love me, you've got to love people. And the only way you're going to love people is by loving me. And the only way you're going to love me is by receiving the love I've already loved you with. God goes first. We respond. Amen. It's grace by faith. It's beautiful. Verse 3. Um, turn, turn with me to Romans 13, 8, as, as we talk about verse 3 here. Um, I know we don't normally jump verses, especially when we're going through this many, but... Um, We've referenced Romans 13, 8 several times throughout this series uh, because of this emphasis that uh, John has on love. Um, but I want you to put your eyes on it, and I want you to commit this set of verses to memory because its importance for understanding what God expects of us as his followers cannot be overstated. Was I clear in what I said? I want you to understand this. What we're about to read, the next couple of verses... The importance in you getting what God is communicating to us through the scriptures in these couple verses, the importance of this cannot be overstated. I could not be too repetitious with this right here because it is the boiling down of all that God expects of us as his kids. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ. The fulfillment of the whole law is the language that's going to be used here. It's, it's, it's such a big deal. And verse 3 tells us, that uh, here's how, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And it says his commandments are not burdensome. And um, the, the reason that is, is because, first of all, it's, it's been made very simple for us. In Romans 13, uh, and in other places, it's been boiled down for us. We can, get, we can get caught up in a whole lot of different directions, and there is a lot that the Bible says about a lot. However, uh, God knows that we are prone to be easily confused, and so he boils it down for us. And um, so the first thing that this is going to do for us is it's going, to, it's going to make it very easy for us to know what to do in almost any situation. According to these verses, in order to stay out of sin, in order to obey God's commandment, in order to walk in the love of God, we can, we can in every situation, just pretty much ask ourselves, what is the most loving thing I can do in this situation? And we will almost always avoid sin, and we will almost always, if not always, end up obeying God. It comes down to love again and again. Some of you aren't convinced of that. Either that or you're getting comatose because you had some of my wife's no-bake cookies downstairs, and now you're in the AC. I need you to come back with me because here's the thing. We're about to read some verses. They're going to boil down for you what God expects of those that are saved by grace through faith. 
What does God expect? If you're going to bear his name, there are several scriptures that say, may you walk in a manner worthy of the name of Christ. This is how you do that. Do you care about that? Do you care about knowing what it is Christ expects of us if we're going to bear his name? Here's the deal. Here's what it is. A very simple, pretty picture is going to be painted for us right here. Starting, uh, this is Romans 13, starting in verse 8. No, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Hear this, hear this, dear ones. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Woo! Does that make living in obedience to God a little bit easier? It's, if nothing else, it's easier to understand. We'll get to the practice, practicing of a part here in a second, but as far as I'm not confused at all about what God expects of me by reading those verses right there. You shall not covet. You will not steal. You're not going to commit adultery. All of it, any commandment that God would have of us can be summed up in loving people. Love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's why again and again and again I keep pushing you back to understanding what God means when he says love. Because it can't be this cheap, fanciful, romantic junk that the culture pushes as a definition for that beautiful word. God meant something different. He tied his very character and nature to the word. And he calls the highest value and virtue of every one of those saved by his Finished work on the cross, the very highest thing he calls us to is to walk in this thing called love. That's why I want to care about what that means. And I want all of us to endeavor by God's Spirit to understand it more and more as we continue to walk with him. Amen? Amen. It is also not burdensome because we've been promised the power and help of the Holy Spirit. So verse 3 tells us that this is, this is the love of God, to obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So I'm letting you know why that's true, because I think for some of you, sometimes it feels burdensome to be a Christian. Some, it, some, some of you, you feel like it's, you do feel like it's heavy, and the scriptures are telling us it shouldn't be, so something has broken there. And part of the deal is either A, you've not, you've not understood up until now that it's really as simple as Following in the example of Jesus and loving others more than we love ourselves. So it's, it's simple, it's not complicated, but it doesn't mean it, it's not hard. And the other way that it's heavy, the other way that obeying the commands of God can be burdensome is when we try to do it in and of our own strength. That's not going to work. Ever, never. Because your default mode is to be about you. It's to be about that human fleshly instinct to survive and get what you need. And be concerned about others last. That is the default mode of the flesh. And so if you're, if you're seeking to do what is exactly unnatural, you're going to need unnatural help. You're going to need supernatural help. You're going to need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You're going to need Jesus to help you. Because selfless is not normal. But it's also why over and over again, we are told that the, the people of God will be known most vibrantly by this one thing. And there's so many things you could think about. You could think it would be holiness. You could think it would be our aversion to sin. You could think it would be all of these other things are really witty bumper stickers. But never does the scripture say that. It says always and every time that we're going to be known most vibrantly, the way we will stand out, the way we will actually be salt and light in a tasteless dark world is loving one another. 
That's how we stand out because it's not normal. I get that. Do you get that? I'm going to need Jesus' help to do it. To care more about you than I care about me? That's, that's not normal. But it's what I'm called to. It's what Jesus did for me. He clearly disregarded what was best for him. For a guy that didn't even care about him yet. And it applies to all of us. Amen. So we follow that example. So it's not a burden because we have been promised the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, without God's help, obedience to his commands would not just be hard, they would be impossible. And so as I talk about this, as I, even as I boil it down to the simplicity of loving your neighbor, if you still try to imagine yourself walking that out in your everyday life and it looks like a struggle, it looks like a bummer, it's not something that lights a passion in you, right? Because I don't want you to just nod your head in, in in agreement to the fact that, yes, that's what the scriptures say. As you sit here, what I'm hoping for is for that maybe small spark to be kindled to a raging fire and for you to be excited about going out and laying your life down for others. Not just agreeing that, yeah, I should do that. And if that's not what you're experiencing, if you're not excited about the fact of following in the footsteps of King Jesus, your Savior, then maybe you're relying on you. Maybe you've not leaned on the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've gotten into, hey, I've got this. I'm fairly moral. I'm pretty, pretty good in and of myself. And if you've gotten there, you're in great danger, my friend. You're in, in, in much greater danger than, than all of those in society that we consider the most wicked. Because pride is the most dangerous of all sins. So cast that down. Lean into God's Holy Spirit and ask for his help. That you can love others the way he's loved us. That's impossible without his help. It's impossible. He set it up that way. You know, he's really crafty. God's so smart because he knew that we were prone to pride. and We were prone to independence and thinking we could do it on our own. And so he set this whole thing up that in order for us to do anything close to what the scriptures has called us to, for us to, it, it's, it should be really hard for us to be deceived into this self-reliance because we look at what the scriptures call us to. We look at how love is defined, that it's defined at his cross, that it's defined by selflessness of the utmost degree. And, and we see that that call is so high and so deep and so vibrant. And then we should be able to look, this, this is supposed to be a mirror, and we see, how am I stacking up to that? Nowhere close. I need help. And so the call of the scriptures, it's not to put this heavy burden upon you and think, oh, God, I'm so far from that. I'm terrible. I'm wretched. No, it's supposed to take you. And that's the whole point of the law originally. The call, the high call of Christ is supposed to send us running to his feet, asking for his help. And then he gladly gives it to us. And that way, we don't ever, ever, ever get caught up in taking credit for what can only be done by the glory and the power of and the majesty of King Jesus. If we can't do what he calls us to do on our own, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And it's true. That's why if you can handle everything, if, if the vision you have for your life, it, it, you can totally handle it in and of yourself. You need no help. Your vision's not big enough. It's probably not from the Lord. You ought to be a part of something that freaks you out. <laughs> it's good for you. It'll cause you to go running to the master. Lord, I'm, I can't do this. That's right where I needed you, son. That's right where I needed you, daughter. Now we can do something. And he'll get the glory. Amen.
I'm excited about that. I don't know about you. <laughs> That's a good thing for me. Amen. Because even though he's bolted down to loving him and loving people, it's easier said than done. I understand that. And partially that's true because the scriptures have left no room for us to pretend that love is just a fuzzy feeling or a generally positive inclination. We are told in no uncertain terms that the love of God and the love we are called to is properly defined and gloriously exemplified in the cross of Christ. It's left us no room to, to be confused about that. And so what we see in the cross of Christ is unmatched humility and selflessness. As the creator king dies for and at the hands of his rebellious creation. With total disregard for what is advantageous or convenient for him. He sacrifices everything for the good of those who were his enemies. And in Matthew 5 verses 43 and 44, Jesus calls us to the kind of love that he's going to later display at the cross. When he says that you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. See, that's the thing, man. We always think, it frustrates me when Christians, when they think that what grace means is that they can get away with more. Yay, Jesus died on the cross, and that means I can be forgiven for my sins, so I can slide with more. Because they talked about crazy stuff in the Old Testament. You messed up, you could get drug right out of town and stoned. They didn't play back then. But then Jesus came, and he's a nicer God um, than, that, than that mean, you know, weird God in the Old Testament. And so what he says now is, you know, yeah, go ahead, and I'll forgive you. you you've not read the Bible. You're confused. That's, that's not the deal. Grace demands more. The fact that we have the entirety of all of the counsel of the scriptures, please do not be deceived. More will be expected of us than was Abraham. You know what he had? Son, get up and start walking. I'll let you know where you're going when you get there. Trust me. You know what, you know what Moses had? Hey, tell all those people, you know, the estimates are maybe a couple million. Tell all them to start walking towards that Red Sea. And once they start walking, I'll part it for them. That's the kind of stuff God did to them. We have all the scriptures. We have the whole deal, Genesis to Revelation. We know God wins, and yet somehow we still struggle to obey. Somehow we still struggle to love God in the way he tells us is really the only way to express love to him, and that's obedience to his word. It's obedience to his commandments. And uh, we, we're not going to get away with more because of grace. The expectations are higher because Jesus came and he lived an example in front of us and now we're called to walk in a manner worthy of his name. That's a big call. There's a big shoes to fill. Of course, that doesn't, we're not going to be perfect. I'm not preaching perfect sanctification here on earth. I understand what the scriptures say. However, I want us to quit being so quick to let ourselves off the hook. Grace, yay! You don't get grace. Grace calls you to more. Stuff like this proves that what I'm saying is true. Some of you don't like this. You're like, hold on, you're messing up my whole paradigm. Um, that's cool. I'm good. I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy about that because why would Jesus say, here's what Jesus came and did. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. That could be tough, but it's doable. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. He raised the bar in everything. 
I had, uh, <clears throat> I had breakfast this morning, me and my family did, with uh, he's an older gentleman. Um, his name's Harold, and uh, he told me an amazing story that, that pertains to this. Um, he lives three doors up from us, and uh, we've become friends primarily through, um, I just take the kids out a lot of times in the stroller and we walk. Um, for some reason, my children, before they can communicate, the only way to keep them from screaming like banshees is to take them outside, and so... Uh, a lot of times I'm just trying to save Natalie's sanity and my own, and, and we go on walks a lot. So, But it's good, because it turns into evangelism. So um, we walk around the block a lot, and Harold would be on his front porch, and we started by just waving, and then um, we ended up going up and talking to him. And uh, so we become friends, and um, you know, I've been trying to gauge it, of course, you know, trying to sow gospel seeds. I've invited him to come and fellowship with us a few times, and that's not really took. And so um, I was praying about what to do next and how to just exert gospel influence toward Harold, and uh, I just felt the Lord prompt me to invite him to breakfast, and so uh, I do want to teach you guys something, though. This, this is a little evangelism trick. Um, include your kids in evangelism. If you have kids, man, include them, because A, you're teaching them, but also it makes it really hard for people to say no, because what I did is I took Lucy down to his house, so whether or not he wanted to come to breakfast, I took my little daughter, a little bun in her hair, curly, blonde hair, blue eyes, and uh, I took her down there. I let her knock on the door. And, uh, you know, he answers the door and she says, Mr. Harold, you, you want to come breakfast at our house? <laughs> what was he going to do? Say no? No. He was coming to breakfast. I don't care what he had planned. Right? So um, <clears throat> he comes down and, and uh, <clears throat> we're eating French toast. And so uh, I would just say, if you have kids, include them in evangelism. And, and if you don't have kids um, and you want them one day, just... Just remember that because uh, not only can God use them, but it's cool to teach them. Because I explained to Lucy on the way <clears throat> down there, I said, you know, Harold's in his upper 80s, and I explained to her that, uh, you know, his wife died five years ago of cancer. His daughter died this year of cancer. He's very lonely. That's kind of where the conversations go when we talk. And so I talked to Lucy about that. She's three. And, you know, she's, she gets it. I'm telling you, kids understand. She's like, I won't say anything about him being lonely, Daddy, but we're, we're going to be his friend, right? I said, yeah, we're going to be his friend. And so uh, that's just, I don't know, that was, that was fun, and it's going to be fun to see what Jesus does in Harold's life, and um, kids are great evangelism tools. So, um, I would also just say, in general... Um, I just want to encourage this church to be people that give honor to the elderly. Um, oftentimes, folks that are, that are up in age can be uh, treated as if they're not important or that they're kind of beyond their prime and thus not a priority. And um, just don't let me catch you being mean to an old person, okay? Because I love you and I'll, I'll jump on you. Um, it's very clear in the scriptures, man, that we should, we should love older folks. And they are, there's a wisdom that comes just from, just from living life, man, that um, you'd do good to sit and listen to. And, uh, for example, I, we have family night every week on Tuesday nights. We uh, go to Natalie's mom's. And um, I don't know if anybody notices this, but I, I intentionally go in and I look for the grandparents first. And I go and I look to greet them first. And you can say, why? Well, you know, sometimes the kids will beat them to it and, and they'll be jumping all over me. But I want to honor, honor the grandparents because you know what? No, none of the rest of the family night would be there <laughs> if it wasn't for the grandparents. 
they hadn't selflessly raised kids that ended up raising kids that now are ended up raising kids. And um, they deserve honor for that. And the Bible says we should be honorable when it's right. And uh, just pay attention to those around you because oftentimes older folks are lonely and it's a really fertile place to sow gospel seeds. Okay? So uh, Harold is sitting there at breakfast and he starts, he starts telling me stories and he's got some really good ones. But um, so he starts telling me this story that uh, he, in World War II, he was a merchant marine. And so um, pretty much that, that wasn't like, they weren't in the military, but they had like a pass because what they were doing was so crucial for the military effort. And so they would, they would be in charge of ships full of cargo that would be supporting guys on the front lines. And there was many times that if they didn't do their job well, uh, we would have lost. And so, um, and also they were not less targeted necessarily than those who were actually in military branches because the enemy knew that, you know, our, our soldiers needed those, those supplies and so they would target them. And so he started telling me a story that one morning he, he was on watch and uh, it was just as the sun was coming up, up over the horizon on the ocean. And so he laid down on the deck and he was looking out and he could see this black spot and it kept getting bigger. And uh, he, so he sat up and, and kind of looked sideways so he could squint past the sun. And, and he wasn't sure yet, but he thought it was a Japanese plane heading right for him. And so he jumped up, climbed some scaffolding, hit the alarm. Everybody got to their stations. Sure enough, by that time, uh, it was a Japanese plane. And this guy came in, dropped a torpedo that, that smoked the middle of the boat, just cut it right in half and uh, blew up. And so the boat started drifting apart from each other, the back end sinking, which he is on, and the front end's going the other way. Guys are scrambling, trying to get life rafts out, and uh, this Japanese plane circles around again to drop some more bombs and finish these guys off. And, uh, but the guys on the front of the ship, their guns were somehow still operable. And so they just start laying into this Japanese plane, and they end up dropping him before he can come back and finish everybody off. And uh, <clears throat> so they get the lifeboats down, and uh, they're, they're looking over, and this, this Japanese guy, however he landed his plane, he didn't die. He jumped out. He's on the wing of his plane, and he had a white handkerchief. He pulls that out, and he starts waving it as a sign of surrender. And uh, so now these guys had a choice. Um, they could either finish shooting the guy, which I'm going to be honest with you, <laughs> as Christian as I should be. I'm getting the biggest gun, I'm pointing it at him. Because a bunch of guys I knew just died. My ship's sinking. These guys paddled over in lifeboats and pulled him in, saved his life, and there's only a few guys left. They're in lifeboats with limited supplies. This is not 2014 where everything's got a GPS on it. They don't know when they're going to be rescued. And so they pulled this Japanese guy in and let him survive on the supplies that were meant for them to live, not knowing if any of them were going to end up being rescued. And you know what? Some of us, some of us will burn people at the stake, man, if we had the chance for talking behind our backs or cutting us off in traffic, right? We get this murderous rage. These guys took the guy that just blew their ship in half and saved his life, fed him, kept him hydrated, until they all were pulled out of there. That's really cool. I want to be like that. And it's going to take God's help for me to be like that. 
because my natural inclination is vengeance. Right? You going to be honest? Or are you going to stand there and look holy? Well, you're sitting. You sit there and look holy. You're, you're looking to get back at somebody. And most of the time for much less than dropping a bomb on your ship. I mean, that's real deal. Can we just get real? Most of the stuff we struggle with today, we're not having anybody dropping torpedoes at our ships, right? Because we're not on ships, <laughs> and nobody's dropping torpedoes on us. So most of our problems are just a couple clicks under what these guys were dealing with. And yet, man, I would say pulling a guy on a boat and feeding him and, and keeping him from dying is they chose to love their enemy. Verse 4 and 5, let's read those together. Oh, I'm still in Romans, let me get back. See, I thought I was going to have Harold over for breakfast and, and talk to him about Jesus and try to help him out, man. He's telling war stories that have me want to go to the bedroom and cry. <laughs> you never know, man. Almost every, I'll tell you, that's true. Almost any time I seek to pour myself out and minister to someone else, I end up being blessed. I will tell you, that's true. Those of you that know, are a part of that and do that, uh, I see your heads nodding all over. You know that it's more blessed to give than receive. That's not just a Christmas time verse about presents. It's, it's true in all of life. Amen. Okay, verses 4 and 5. Uh, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The yin-yang is wrong. False religions that teach an equal balance of good and evil are wrong. The enemy is overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Sin and darkness lost the day that the precious blood of Christ flowed down that cross. Death was defeated forever when the tomb they laid him in couldn't hold him. There is no balance. God has no equal. His victory will be complete, and we get to be on his team. Amen. I'm happy about that. If you find yourself not that happy about that, I would encourage you to shake yourself. <laughs> the Christian is thrilled about the fact that Jesus wins, and we're with him. He brings us along. Not that we deserve to go, but he just loves us that much. He'll do all the work. Let us share in the victory. It's wonderful. Verses 5 through 9, let's read those together. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. This phrase, uh, came by water and blood, it's been a source of a lot of um, spirited discussion throughout the church, the history of the church. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of agreement about even what is meant here. Uh, there are those that have said this is one of the most confusing passages, potentially, uh, in, in, definitely in this epistle, but some would say in all of the New Testament. Um, and there's a few different ideas about its, its meaning. And so I'll, I'll give you some of those. I'll let you know which one I think makes the most sense. Um, this would be an open-handed topic. You're welcome to uh, believe any of these, and uh, we'll still love you. Okay? So, the first one, uh, the great reformers Luther and Calvin, they saw this reference to uh, him coming. So, it's, it's um, 
Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood. So what, is, what are we talking about there? Came by water and blood. They saw this as a reference uh, to uh, our baptism and our taking of communion. So almost like a forward-looking that uh, in those sacraments that, that the Spirit of Christ really comes to us in water baptism and in communion. That's what Calvin and Luther thought. Uh, that is a little bit confusing because of the, the tense of the language that John uses. He seems to be talking past tense, that he already came, and it doesn't have so much an emphasis on a continuing of Jesus coming by blood and by water. And so uh, that is not what, what I ascribe to. There are smart people that do believe that's the truth. Uh, some believe that this reference to water and blood is uh, the waters of the womb, or so that Jesus is born of a woman, and the blood being a reference to his death. Uh, if this is the case, if this is what John is communicating, really what he's saying is that Jesus was born like a man and died like a man. Um, and this does hold some credence because it would be another response. John seems to be answering many times throughout this letter the attack of the Gnostics, the heretical lie of the Gnostics at that time. They were trying to convince everyone that Jesus didn't, some even didn't believe he existed at all in the flesh. He was only spirit, but then especially that his resurrection was only that of, uh, of his spirit. And so John is answering that. Uh, if that's the case, and it could be, um, he's saying, look, he was born like a man and died like a man. Uh, Augustine, so he's, he's a Bible teacher from the 4th century, he believed that this, was a, that this passage was a reference to the water and blood that flowed from the side of Jesus at his crucifixion, right? So this is one of, the, one of the reasons that we think it's ridiculous when people try to say Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he just fell asleep and then he woke up three days later. Um, there's many, many reasons why that's ignorant. However, one of them is that just to make sure he was dead, the professional executioners came with a spear and thrust it up past his ribcage into his heart sack, and blood and water flowed. And so Augustine thought that this was a reference to that event. And that was a, an important event. Um, I, I don't personally think that that's what's being referenced here. Um, that doesn't, it's not, it wouldn't be real clear how Jesus came by the blood and water that flowed from him that day. Uh, the oldest understanding of this passage is, is in my mind, the best uh, way to understand it. The church father, Tertullian, taught that this was a reference to Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion, right? So Calvin and Luther thought it was a reference to our baptism and our taking of the Lord's Supper. Tertullian said that this is a reference to Jesus' baptism, his water baptism in the River Jordan by John, and his uh, crucifixion. And so uh, Jesus had no need for being baptized as a sign of his repentance of sin because he had none, right? He was perfect. Uh, but he did it. He did. Uh, he was baptized by John. He said, first of all, to, um, to be obedient to the Father, but to also to identify with us, and he set a precedent for us to follow, right? People that get messed up about, well, should I be water baptized? Well, I, real quick, Jesus did it, so go for it. <laughs> You're pretty safe with that. Um, and also in his crucifixion, when he died in our place for our sins, it was not as if he had no choice. We sang that today. Uh, no one takes your life. Nobody. Um, the reality is no one could have restrained him had he not allowed it. As a matter of fact, if you read John's account of him being arrested in the garden, uh, they ask, are, are you Jesus? Are you the one we're looking for? And when he answers, I am, dudes just start falling on the ground. Just the very admission of who he is. Through his mouth, guys are getting knocked over backwards. And so it was no lack of power that ended up Jesus at the cross. And it wasn't nails that held him there. It was his incredible love and passion for you and his desire to save you from your sins. 
God, that makes me want to serve him. It makes me want to pour out every bit of everything he's given me back to his glory and for the fulfilling of his mission. To just think about that. Guy with that much power. King of everything. He'd die for a guy like me. Because I know me. That's, the, that's part of the problem. That's why I can't get over this whole Christianity thing. That's why I'm enamored with the fact that he died for me. Because I know how not worthy I was. And I'm thankful. But in submitting to death, and even death on a cross, he was finishing his mission. He was coming into his final victory. And that's what I think is being spoke of here. Verses 10 through 12. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Verses... 10 through 12 of 1 John 5, this is not popular. This is not a popular sentiment. This is something that would really tick people off. Because what's happening here is there are clear, bold, thick lines being drawn. We either believe the truth about Jesus as is presented in the Word, or we call God a liar. This erases all of the potential for a cute middle ground where Jesus is placed along with other prophets like Buddha and Muhammad, the Krishna. No. Jesus is not a good moral teacher. He's either God, who he said he was. He's either the risen king, savior of all, or he's a lunatic. Or he's a liar, is what is said here. We can't, we can't take that, that neat middle ground that leaves us kind of neutral. What's being said here is you're for him or you're against him. People don't like that. They want to be able to cruise in their own special Jesus zone. I've got a special relationship with Jesus. Me and him are cool. I can... I can kind of come to him on my own terms. No, you can't. I love you. Let me tell you the truth. You can come to him on his terms. He's the king. He died in your place for your sin. He spoke and created everything that exists. You do not come to him, dear one, and dictate to him how the relationship's going to go. You come humbly and you receive grace and love and mercy. And the response to that is obedience, which is your expression of love in return. It's the only way it works. That's not popular. That's not popular in a culture that does not want to give up what it perceives to be its autonomous ability to dictate its own future. See, people think that they can be their own God and be okay. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. But if I'm shattering your understanding of reality, then I'm sorry because I know that that can be reeling, but that's not the case. God is God. You are not. He's the one that existed before everything. You are not. He made you, not the other way around. And thus, the flow of command comes from him. But the beauty is, we're promised here. If we walk by the power of his spirit, those commands are not burdensome. That all we must do is respond to the love that we've been loved with. Give that love back to God and give it to others. It's a wonderful life. It's a joyous life to obey Jesus. It's not burdensome. It's not heavy. I don't know, some of, you, some of you might have been at this too long and you forgot how heavy it was to live in darkness and sin. Some of you have forgotten what it's like to be hopeless. Some of you have forgotten what it's like to not know that God would hear and answer your prayers. You, you still, are you thankful for prayer? 
Like, really, when you lift up your voice and believe that the God of the universe has the ability and the will to listen to you, are you still enamored by that? You should be. You should never, ever, ever have to cross praying off a list of things to do. You should every time be blown away that God would listen to you, that he invites you to come to him as a son or a daughter. I, I cannot get over that, and I don't want to for the rest of my life. I want to smile every time I think about the fact that I can open my mouth, speak to the God of the universe. He'll hear me and care about what I'm saying. What? Are you kidding me? Praise God. And it's just the fact that he can, it speaks to how amazingly powerful he is. Because we can all at the same time be speaking to him. And, and he's not like I am when both of my kids start, you know, one's squeaking over here, slamming cabinet doors, and the other one's, Dad, I need something to drink. And, you know, then the phone rings, and I'm ready to just go Super Saiyan Hulk mode out of frustration. God doesn't get that way. He can handle it. He's got all the power we need. And he loves us. It's awesome. So here's what also is being said here. <clears throat> Verse 12. He who has the Son has the life. He does, he does not, who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Let me be clear. Trusting in the good news of the gospel by faith is the only way to heaven. There are many who, who, who would claim to be Christian today that will not say that because they realize that it angers those who want there to be multiple paths. Well, what if I just believe very earnestly what it is I believe? Would God not consider that okay? No. Let me say clearly, no. And is that unloving? No, it's not. It's very loving. If somebody's, if somebody's walking towards a door and you know on the other side of that door is somebody standing with a shotgun and they're just going to blow them away, what is the most loving thing to do? Is it to say, hey, stop, stop, stop. Don't go through that door. It's going to be bad for you if you go through that door. Or, or is the most loving thing to stand back and say, well, you know, I mean, they're an adult. They can make their own decisions. And what if they don't, what if they don't like that I yell at them? No, man, that's insane. Please, if I'm walking towards imminent danger, would you stop me? And he, if I'm being pig-headed and prideful and I'm not listening to you, hit me with a rock or something. Okay? Don't let me go through that door. Love me enough to wrap up my feet, do a good form tackle, do something, get my attention. Right? That would be love. Not, well, I tried once. He didn't want to hear it. See, our, our, our perception of love is skewed. It's, it's messed up. Trusting in the good news of the gospel by faith is the only way to heaven. This should not cause us to feel smug and secure or superior because we have the truth. But it should cause us to mourn along with God at the plight of the lost. And our hearts should fill with love and compassion that stirs us to action. Never should the fact that we know the truth about Jesus cause us to feel better than anybody. It should cause us to feel broken the way that God does, thinking that there are those that don't know the truth. And that their eternity right now is not set with God in heaven. That should hurt you. If you're a Christian, that should bother you. It should cause you to not care if you're inconvenienced, to do something to let, let somebody know that there's hope in Christ. If you're a Christian, you used to be a part of a majority in this country. That to, For you to say that you were a follower of Jesus and that you believed what the Bible teaches about him and who he is, there was a tangible social benefit to being a Christian. It was expected that most Americans would have at least positive inclination towards the God of the Bible. 
those days are gone. Please let me make it clear to you. Those days are gone. And the days are coming when we will see who truly loves God and loves people because it's going to cost them something to do so. It's never, not loving people in the sense of inviting them over to breakfast. That, that's, I don't think that's ever going to be something you're going to be persecuted for. But to invite someone over to breakfast and say, the only way to heaven is to trust in Jesus. Do you, do you trust in Jesus for salvation? The days are coming that to love somebody like that is going to cost you something. <clears throat> that we will not only risk rejection and perhaps our reputation being tarnished, but the reality is the days are coming when being a Christian is not just going to be not the majority. It'll cost you something and potentially something dear. I know that that's true. My hope is that we would be counted among the faithful, that no matter the cost and no matter the sacrifice, that we will walk in love and obedience for our good and for his glory. Amen? That's my great hope. I pray that for you. Pray that for me. Pray that for each other. For some of you, it's already cost. It's already cost you dearly to be a Christian. I honor you. Keep going. Jesus paid a high price. We've got to be willing to go all the way. We've got to be willing to love like he did. Even people that don't want it. Even people that set themselves against us. Even those that may persecute us. We follow his example. It's a great one. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. And we thank you. We thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for the book of 1 John. We thank you that you inspired this letter to be written. That it is repetitive in its reasoning, its argumentation. It keeps coming back around to the same things. And Lord, let us not have the standard lack of humility response to that that would cause us to think, oh, I've heard this before, but let it pierce us anew, deep into the deep places of our heart. Let it shine light into the dark places of our heart, Lord, that have been overcome by selfishness. God, let us, let us rejoice in the truth of these words that tell us that we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to walk out the kind of life that Jesus did. Not perfect like he did, but ever moving towards that goal. That King Jesus, his actions, his words, the way he lived, that that's our high mark. That we don't set some other arbitrary lower mark. That we don't just try to be better than the person next to us. But that perfect, beautiful, wonderful, loving Jesus is our example. We ask for help. We ask for help, Lord, to walk this out. We ask for help to be bold in love. We ask for help to love our neighbor and fulfill the whole law in doing so. Lord, help us to love our enemies. That's really hard. That is so hard. We cannot, we will not do that in and of ourselves. We need you, Lord, to remind us of these scriptures, to fill our hearts with more love than we can handle, that we have to pour it out. And may you be glorified as all these things happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.